Section 9 of The Black Prophet by William Carleton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 9. There was something singularly benevolent and kind in the old peddler's voice as he uttered the last words, and he had not gone many perches from the stone when Dalton's heart relented as he reflected on his harsh and unfriendly demeanour towards him. That is a good old man, he observed, and I am now sorry that I spoke to him so roughly. There was kindness in his voice and in his eye as he looked upon us. There was, replied Maeve, and I think him a good old man, too. I don't think he would harm anyone. Dear Maeve, said Dalton, I must now get home as soon as I can. I don't feel so well as I was. There is a chill upon me, and I'm afeard I won't have a comfortable night. And I can do nothing for you, added Maeve, her eyes filling with tears. I didn't thank you for that lock of hair you sent me by Donald Dew, he added. It is here upon my heart, and I needn't say that if anything had happened me, or if anything should happen me, it and that heart must go to dust together. You are too much cast down, she replied, her tears flowing fast, and it can't surely be otherwise, but dear Con, let us hope for better days, and put our trust in God's goodness. Farewell, dear Maeve, he replied, and may God bless and preserve you till I see you again. And may he send down aid to you all, she added, and give consolation to your breaking hearts. An embrace, long, tender, and mournful, accompanied their words, after which they separated in sorrow and in tears, and with but little hope of happiness on the path of life that lay before them. CHAPTER Nineteen, HANLON SECURES THE TOBACCO-BOX Strange scene at midnight, the hour so mysteriously appointed by Red Roddy for the delivery of the tobacco-box to Hanlon, was fast approaching, and the night, though by no means so stormy as that which we have described on the occasion of that person's first visit to the Greystone, was nevertheless dark and rainy with an occasional slight gust of wind that uttered a dreary and melancholy moan as it swept over the hedges. Hanlon, whose fear of supernatural appearances had not been diminished by what he had heard there before as well as on his way home, now felt alarmed at every gust of wind that went past him. He hurried on, however, and kept his nerves as firmly set as his terrors would allow him, until he got upon the plain old road which led directly to the appointed place. The remarkable interest which he had felt at an earlier stage of the circumstances that compose our narrative was beginning to cool a little, when it was revived by his recent conversation with Red Roddy concerning the Black Prophet, and the palpable contradictions in which he detected that person, with reference to the period when the prophet came to reside in the neighborhood. His anxiety, therefore, about the tobacco-box began, as he approached the grey stone, to balance his fears, so that by the time he arrived there he found himself cooler and firmer a good deal than when he first crossed the dark fields from home. Hanlon, in fact, had learned a good deal of the prophet's real character from several of those who had never been duped by his impostures, and the fact of ascertaining that the very article so essential to the completion of his purpose had been found in the prophet's house or possession gave a fresh and still more powerful impulse to his determinations. The night we have already observed was dark, and the heavy gloom which covered the sky was dismal and monotonous. Several flashes of lightning, it is true, had shot out from the impervious masses of black clouds that lay against each other overhead. These, however, only added 
terror to the depression which such a night and such a sky were calculated to occasion i trust thought hanlon as he approached the stone that there will be no disappointment and that i won't have my journey on such a dark and dismal night for nothing how this red ruffian can have any authority over a girl like sarah is a puzzle that i can't make out it was just as these thoughts occurred to him that he arrived at the stone where he stood anxiously waiting and listening and repeating his paternoster as well as he could for several minutes but without hearing or seeing any one i might have known thought he that the rascal could bring but nothing of the kind and i am only a fool for heeding him at all at this moment however he heard the noise of a light quick footstep approaching and almost immediately afterwards sarah joined him well i am glad you are come said he for god knows when i thought of our last stand here i was anything but comfortable why replied sarah what were you afeard of i hate a cowardly man and you are cowardly not where mere flesh and blood is concerned he replied i'm afeard of neither man nor woman but i wouldn't like to meet a ghost or spirit may the lord preserve us why now what harm could a ghost or spirit do you did you ever hear that they laid hands on or killed any one no but for all that it's well known that several persons have died of fright in consequence ay of cowardliness but it wasn't the ghost killed them sure the poor ghost only comes to get relief for itself to have masses said or maybe to do justice to some one that is wronged in this world there's jimmy beatty and he lay three weeks of fright from seeing a ghost and it turned out when all was known that the ghost was nothing more or less than tom martin's white-faced cow ha 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 at any rate let us change the subject said hanlon you heard yourself the last night we were here what i'll never forget we heard some noise like a groan and that was all but who could tell what it was or who cares either i for one do but dear sarah have you the box why does your voice tremble that way for is it fear because if i thought it was i wouldn't scruple much to walk home without another word and bring the box with me you have it then to be sure i have and my father and nelly is both hunting the house for it why what could your father want with it how can i tell and only that i promised it to you i wouldn't fetch it at all i thought you had given it up for lost how did you get it again that's nothing to you and don't trouble your head about it there it is now and i have kept my word for while i live i'll never break it if i can dear me how bright that flash was as hanlon was taking the box out of her hand a fearful flash of sheeted lightning opened out of a cloud almost immediately above them and discovered it so plainly that the letters p m were distinctly legible on the lid of it and nearly at the same moment a deep groan was heard as if coming out of the rock father of heaven exclaimed hanlon do you hear that yes she replied i did hear a groan but here do you go oh it would be useless to ask you so i must only do it myself stand here and i'll go round the rock at any rate let us be sure that it is a ghost don't sarah he exclaimed seizing her arm for god's sakes don't it is a spirit i know it don't leave me i understand it all and maybe you will some day too now she exclaimed indignantly and in an incredulous voice in god's name what has a spirit to do with an old rusty tobacco box it's surely a curious box there's my father would give one of his eyes to find it and nelly that hid it the other day found it gone when she went to get it for him do you tell me so said hanlon placing it as he spoke in his safest pocket i do she replied and only that i promised it 
to you and would not break my word i'd give it to my father but i don't see myself what use it can be of to him or anybody hanlon despite of his terrors heard this intelligence with the deepest interest indeed with an interest so deep that he almost forgot them altogether and with a view of eliciting from her as much information in connection with it as he could he asked her to accompany him a part of the way home it's not quite the thing she replied for a girl like me to be walkin with a young feller at this hour but as i'm not afeard of you and as i know you are afeard of the ghost if there is a ghost i will go part of the way with you although it does not say much for your courage to ask me thank you sarah you are a perfect treasure whatever i was or whatever i am charley i can never be anything more to you than a mere acquaintance i don't think ever we were much more but what i want to tell you is that if ever you have any serious notion of me you must put it out of your head why so sarah why so she replied hastily why because i don't wish it isn't that enough for you if you have spirit well but i'd like to know why you changed your mind ah said she well after all that's only natural it is but reasonable and i'll tell you in the first place there's a want of manliness about you that i don't like i think you've but little heart or feeling you toy with the girls with this one and that one and you don't appear to love any one of them in short you're not affectionate i'm afeard now here i am and i can scarcely say that ever you courted me like a man that had feeling i think you're revengeful too for i have seen you look black and angry at a woman before now you never loved me i know i say i know you did not there then is some of my reasons but i'll tell you one more that's worth them all i love another now ay she added with a convulsive laugh i love another and i know charley that he can't love me there's more lightning what a flash oh i didn't care this minute if it went through my heart don't talk so sarah i know what's before me disappointment disappointment in everything the people say i'm wild and very wicked in my temper and i am too but how could i be otherwise for what did i ever see or hear under our own miserable roof but evil talk and evil deeds a word of kindness i never got from my father or from nelly nothing but the bad word and the hard blow until now that she is afeard of me but little she knew that many a time when i was fiercest and threatened to put a knife into her there was a quiver of affection in my heart a yearning i may say after kindness that had me often near throwing my arms about her neck and asking her why she mightn't as well be kind as cruel to me but i couldn't because i knew that if i did she'd only tramp on me and despise me and tyrannize over me more and more she uttered these sentiments under the influence of deep feeling checkered with an occasional burst of wild distraction that seemed to originate from much bitterness of heart is it a fair question replied hanlon whose character she had altogether misunderstood having in point of fact never had an opportunity of viewing it in its natural light is it a fair question to ask you who is it that you're in love with it's not a fair question she replied i know he loves another and for that reason i'll never breathe it to a mortal because he added if i knew maybe i might be able to put in a good word for you now and then accordin as i got an opportunity for me she replied indignantly what to beg him get fond of me oh it's wonderful the meanness that's in almost every one you meet no she proceeded vehemently if he was a king on his throne sooner than stooped to that or if he didn't or couldn't love me on my own account i'd let the last drop of my heart's blood out first oh no 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 ha he loves another she added hastily he loves another 
"'And do you know her?' asked Hanlon. "'Do I know her?' she replied. "'Do I know her? "'It's I that do, I, and I have her in my power, too, "'and if I set about it, can prevent a ring from ever going on them. "'Ha, ha, and I, that devil Sarah McGowan, "'what a fine character I have got. "'Well, well, good night, Charlie. "'Maybe it's a folly to have a bad name for nothing.' at least they say so ha ha good night i'll go home oh i had like to forgot red body told me he was speaking to you about something that he says you can't but understand yourself and he desired me to get you if i could to join him in it i said i would if it was right and honest for i have great doubts of it being either the one or the other if it comes from him he said that it was both but that it'd be a great piece of roguery to have it undone now if it is what he says it is help him in it if you can but if it isn't have no hand in it that's all i told him i would say and that's all i do say keep out of his secrets i advise you and above all things avoid everything mean and dishonest for charlie i have a kind of liking for you that i can't explain although i don't love you as a sweetheart good night again she left him abruptly and at a rapid pace proceeded back to the greystone around which she walked with a view of examining whether or not there might be any cause visible earthly or otherwise for the groans which they had heard but notwithstanding a close and diligent search she could neither see nor hear anything whatsoever to which they might possibly be ascribed she reached home about one o'clock and after having sat musing for a time over the fire which was raked for the night that is covered over with geese hog or living ashes she was preparing to sleep in her humble bed behind a little partition wall about five feet high at the lower end of the cabin when her father who had been moaning and staring and uttering abrupt exclamations in his sleep at length rose up and began deliberately to dress himself as if with an intention of going out father said she in the name of goodness where are you going at this time of the night i'm going to the murdered man's grave he replied i'm going to tell them all how he was murdered and who it was that murdered him a girl with nerves less firm would have felt a most deadly terror at such language on perceiving as sarah at once did that her father whose eyes were shut was fast asleep at the time in her however it only produced such a high degree of excitement and interest as might be expected from one of her ardent and excitable temperament imbued as it was with a good deal of natural romance in god's name she said to herself what can this mean of late he hasn't had one hour's quiet rest at night nothing but startin and shoutin out and talkin about murder and murderers what can it mean for he's now walkin in his sleep father said she you're asleep go back to bed you had better no i'm not asleep he replied i'm going down to the grave here below behind the rocks down in glendew where the murdered man is lying buried and what brings you there at this time of the night ha ha he replied uttering an exclamation of caution in a low guarded voice what brings me whist hold your tongue and i'll tell you she really began to doubt her senses notwithstanding the fact of his eyes being shut whist yourself she replied i don't want to hear anything about it i have no relish for such secrets i'm ready enough with my own hand especially when there's a weapon in it readier than ever i'll be again for all that i don't wish to hear such secrets are you asleep or awake i'm awake of course he replied and why are your eyes shut then your frightful father to look at no corpse ever had such a face as you have your heavy brows are knit in such a way just as if you were in an agony your cheeks are so white too and your mouth is down at the corners that a ghost i the ghost of the murdered man himself would be agreeable compared to you go to bed father if you're awake 
to all this he made no reply but having dressed himself he deliberately and with great caution raised the latch and proceeded out at that dismal and lonely hour sarah for a time knew not how to act she had often heard of sleep-walking and she feared now that if she awakened him he might imagine that she had heard matters which he wished no ears whatever to hear for the truth was that some vague suspicions of a dreadful nature had lately entered her mind suspicions which his broken slumbers his starts and frequent exclamations during sleep had only tended to confirm i will watch him at all events said she to herself and see that he comes to no danger she accordingly shut the door after her and followed him pretty closely into the deep gloom of the silent and solitary glen with cautious but steady and unerring steps he proceeded in the direction of the loneliest spot of it which having reached he went by a narrow and untrodden circuit a kind of broken but natural pathway to the identical spot where the body which nelly had discovered lay he then raised his hand as if in caution and whispered wisht here is where the murdered man's body lies i'll not do it said sarah i'll not do it it would be mean and ungenerous to ax him a question that might make him betray himself at this moment the moon which had been for some time risen presented a strange and alarming aspect she seemed red as blood and directly across her centre there went a black bar a bar so ominously and intensely black that it was impossible to look upon it without experiencing something like what one might be supposed to feel in the presence of a supernatural appearance at the performance of some magic or unnatural rite where the sorcerer by the wickedness of his spell forced her as it were thus to lend a dreadful and reluctant sanction to his proceedings her father however proceeded i who murdered him my lord why my lord hm it was condy dalton and i have another man to prove it along with myself one roddy duncan now roddy answer strong swear home mind yourself roddy these words were spoken aside precisely as one would address them when instructing any person to give a particular line of evidence he then stooped down and placed his hand upon the grave said as if he were addressing the dead man ha you sleep cool there you guilty villain and it wasn't my fault that the unfaithful and dishonest strap that you got that for didn't get as much herself there you are and you'll tell no tales at all events you know roddy he proceeded it was dalton that murdered him mind that but you're a coward at heart as for myself there's nothing troubles me but that tobacco box but you know nothing about that may the devil confound me at any rate for not destroying it and that old strap nelly suspects something for she's always ringing providence into my ears but if i had that box destroyed i'd disregard providence if there is a providence the words had barely proceeded out of his lips when a peal of thunder astonishingly loud broke as it were over their very heads having been preceded by a flash of lightning so bright that the long well-defined grave was exposed in all its lonely horrors to sarah's eye that's odd now said she that the thunder should come as he said them very words but thank god that it was dalton that did the deed for if it was himself he'd not keep it back now when the truth would be sure to come out it was he my lord and gentlemen of the jury proceeded her father and my conscience my lord during all this long time 
Here he muttered something which she could not understand, and after stooping down and putting his hand on the grave a second time, he turned about and retraced his steps home. It appeared, however, that late as the hour was, there were other persons abroad as well as themselves, for Sarah could distinctly hear the footsteps of several persons passing along the adjoining road past the grey stone, and she also thought that among the rest might be distinguished the voice of Red Roddy Duncan. The prophet quietly opened the door, entered as usual, and went to bed, Sarah having also retired to her own little sleeping-place, lay for some time musing deeply over the incidents of the night. CHAPTER Twenty, TUMULTS CONFESSIONS OF MURDER The next morning opened with all the dark, sultry rain and black, cloudy drapery which had, as we have already stated, characterized the whole season. Indeed, during the year we are describing, it was known that all those visible signs which prognosticate any particular description of weather had altogether lost their significance. If a fine day came, for instance, which indeed was a rare case, or a clear and beautiful evening, it was but natural that after such a dark and dreary course of weather the heart should become glad and full of hope that a permanent change for the better was about to take place, but alas, all cheerful hope and expectation were in vain. The morrow's sun rose as before, dim and gloomy, to wade along his dismal and wintry path, without one glimpse of enlivening light from his rising to his setting. We have already mentioned slightly those outrages to which the disease and misery that scourged the country in so many shapes had driven the unfortunate and perishing multitudes. Indeed, if there be any violation of the law that can or ought to be looked upon with the most lenient consideration and forbearance by the executive authorities, it is that which takes place under the irresistible pressure of famine and singular as it may appear it is no less true that this is a subject concerning which much ignorance prevails not only throughout other parts of the empire but even at home here in ireland with ourselves much for instance is said and has been said concerning what are termed years of famine but it is not generally known that since the introduction of the potato in this country no year has ever passed which in some remote locality or other has not been such to the unfortunate inhabitants the climate of ireland is so unsettled its soil so various in quality and the potato so liable to injury from excess of either drought or moisture that we have no hesitation in stating the startling fact of this annual famine as one we can vouch for upon our personal knowledge and against the truth of which we challenge contradiction neither does an autumn pass without a complaint peculiar to those who feed solely upon the new and unripe potato and which ever since the year thirty two is known by the people as the potato cholera with these circumstances the legislature ought to be acquainted inasmuch as they are calamities that will desolate and afflict the country so long as the potato is permitted to be as it unfortunately is the staple food of the people that we are subject in consequence of that fact to periodical recurrences of death and disease is well known and admitted but that every season brings its partial scourge of both these evils to various remote and neglected districts of ireland has not been what it ought long since to have been an acknowledged and established fact in the sanitary statistics of the country indeed one would imagine that 
after the many terrible visitations which we have had from destitution and pestilence a legislature sincerely anxious for the health and comfort of the people would have devoted itself in some reasonable measure to the human consideration of such proper sumptuary and sanatory enactments as would have provided not only against the recurrence of these evils but for a more enlightened system of public health and cleanliness and a better and more comfortable provision of food for the indigent and poor as it is at present provision dealers of all kinds mealmongers forestallers butchers bakers and hucksters combine together and sustain such a general monopoly in food as is at variance with the spirit of all law and humanity and constitutes a kind of artificial famine in the country and surely these circumstances ought not to be permitted so long as we have a deliberate legislature whose duty it is to watch and guard the health and morals of the people at the present period of our narrative and especially on the gloomy morning following the prophet's unconscious visit to the grave of the murdered man the popular outrages had risen to an alarming height up to the present time occasional outbreaks by small and detached groups of individuals had taken place at night or before dawn and rather in a timid or fugitive manner than with the recklessness of men who assemble in large crowds and set both law and all consequences at open defiance now however destitution and disease had wrought such woeful work among the general population that it was difficult to know where or how to prescribe bounds to the impetuous resentment with which they expressed themselves against those who held over large quantities of food in order to procure high prices at this moment the country with its waste unreaped crops tying in a state of plashy and fermenting ruin and its desolate and wintry aspect was in frightful keeping with the appearance of the people when thus congregated together we can only say that the famine crowds of that awful year should have been seen in order to have been understood and felt the whole country was in a state of dull but frantic tumult and the wild crowds as they came and went in the perpetuation of their melancholy outrages were worn down by such startling evidences of general poverty and suffering as were enough to fill the heart with fear as well as pity even to look upon their cadaverous and emaciated aspects had something in them so wild and wolfish and the fire of famine blazed so savagely in their hollow eyes that many of them looked like creatures changed from their very humanity by some judicial plague that had been sent down from heaven to punish and desolate the land and in truth there is no doubt whatsoever that the intensity of their sufferings and the natural panic which was occasioned by the united ravages of disease and famine had weakened the powers of their understanding and impressed upon their bearing and features an expression which seemed partly the wild excitement of temporary frenzy and partly the dull hopeless apathy of fatuity a state to which it is well known that misery sickness and hunger altogether had brought down the strong intellect and reason of the wretched and famishing multitudes nor was this state of feeling confined to those who were goaded by the frightful sufferings that prevailed on the contrary thousands became victims of the quick and powerful contagion which spread the insane spirit of violence at a rapid rate affecting many during the course of the day who in the early part of the morning had not partaken of its influence to no other principle than this can we attribute the wanton and irrational outrages of many of the people every one acquainted with such awful visitations 
must know that their terrific realities cause them by wild influences that run through the whole masses to forget all the decencies and restraints of ordinary life until fear and shame and becoming respect for order all of which constitute the moral safety of society are thrown aside or resolved into the great tyrannical instinct of self-preservation which when thus stimulated becomes what may be termed the insanity of desolation we know that the most savage animals as well as the most timid will when impelled by its ravenous clamours alike forget every other appetite but that which is necessary for the sustainment of life urged by it alone they will sometimes approach and assail the habitations of man and in the fury of the moment expose themselves to his power and dare his resentment just as a famine mob will do when urged by the same instinct in a year of scarcity there is no beast however in the deepest jungle of africa itself so wild savage and ferocious as a human mob when left to its own blind and headlong impulses on the morning in question the whole country was pouring forth its famished hordes to intercept meal-carts and provision vehicles of all descriptions on their way to market or to the next seaport for shipment or to attack the granaries of provision dealers and all who having food in large quantities refused to give it gratis or at a nominal price to the poor carts and cars therefore mostly the property of unoffending persons were stopped on the highways they are broken and the food which they carried openly taken away and in case of resistance those who had charge of them were severely beaten mills were also attacked and pillaged and in many instances large quantities of flour and grain not only carried off but wantonly and wickedly strewn about the streets and destroyed in all these acts of violence there was very little shouting the fact being that the wretched people were not able to shout unless on rare occasions and sooth to say their vociferations were then but a faint and a feeble echo of the noisy tumults which in general characterized the proceedings of excited and angry crowds truly those pitiable gatherings had their own peculiarities of misery during the progress of the pillage individuals of every age sex and condition so far as condition can be applied to the lower classes might be seen behind ditches in remote nooks in porches of houses and many on the open highways and streets eating or rather gobbling up raw flour or oatmeal others more fortunate were tearing and devouring bread with a fury to which only the unnatural appetites of so many famished maniacs could be compared as might be expected most of these inconsiderate acts of license were punished by the consequences which followed them sickness of various descriptions giddiness retchings fainting fits convulsions and in some cases death itself were induced by this wolfish and frightful gluttony on the part of the starving people others however who possessed more sense and maintained a greater restraint over their individual sufferings might be seen in all directions hurrying home loaded with provisions of the most portable descriptions under which they tottered and panted and sometimes fell utterly prostrate from recent illness or the mere exhaustion of want aged people grey-haired old men and old women bent with age exhibited a wild and excited alacrity that was grievous to witness while hurrying homewards if they had a home or if not to the first friendly shelter they could get a kind of dim exalting joy feebly blazing in their heavy eyes and a wild sense of unexpected good fortune 
working in unnatural play upon the muscles of their wrinkled and miserable faces the ghastly impressions of famine however were not confined to those who composed the crowds even the children were little living skeletons wan and yellow with the spirit of pain and suffering legible upon their fleshless but innocent features while the very dogs as was well observed were not able to bark unless they stood against a wall for indeed such of them as survived were nothing but ribs and skin at all events they assisted in making up the terrible picture of general misery which the country at large presented both day and night but at night especially their hungry howlings could be heard over the country or mingling with wailings which the people were in the habit of pouring over those whom the terrible typhus was sweeping away with such wide and indiscriminate fatality our readers may now perceive that the sufferings of these unhappy crowds before they had been driven to these acts of violence were almost beyond belief at an early period of the season when the potatoes could not be dug miserable women might be seen early in the morning and in fact during all hours of the day gathering weeds of various descriptions in order to sustain life and happy were they who could procure a few handfuls of young nettles chicken-weed sorrel priscog buglass or seaweed to bring home as food either for themselves or their unfortunate children others again were glad to creep or totter to stock farms at great distances across the country in hope of being able to procure a portion of blood which on such melancholy occasions is taken from the heifers and bullocks that graze there in order to prevent the miserable poor from perishing by actual starvation and death alas little do our english neighbours know or dream of the horrors which attend a year of severe famine in this unhappy country the crowds which kept perpetual and incessant siege to the houses of wealthy and even of struggling small farmers were such as scarcely any pen could describe neither can we render anything like adequate justice to the benevolence and charity nay we ought to say the generosity and magnanimity of this and the middle class in general in no country on earth could such noble instances of self-denial and sublime humanity be witnessed it has happened in thousands of instances that the last miserable morsel the last mouthful of nourishing liquid the last potato or the last sixpence has been divided with wretched and desolate beings who required it more and this too by persons who when that was gone knew not to what quarter they could turn with a hope of replacing for themselves that which they had just shared in a spirit of such genuine and exalted piety footnote it is as well to state here that the season described in this tale is the dreadful and melancholy one of eighteen seventeen and we may add that in order to avoid the charge of having exaggerated the almost incredible sufferings of the people in that year we have studiously kept our descriptions of them within the limits of truth dr Cogigan, in his able and very sensible pamphlet on fever and famine as cause and effect in ireland a pamphlet by the way which has been the means of conveying the most important truths to statesmen and which ought to be looked on as of great public benefit has confirmed the accuracy of the gloomy pictures i was forced to draw here follow an extract or two it is scarcely necessary to call to recollection the summer of eighteen ten cold and wet corn uncut in november or rotting in the sheaves on the ground 
potatoes not ripened, and when unripe there cannot be worse food, containing more water than nutrient straw at such an extravagant price as to render the obtaining of it for bedding almost impossible, and when procured retaining from its half-fermented state so much moisture that the use was perhaps worse than the want of it the same agent that destroyed the harvest spoiled the turf seldom had such a multiplication of evils come together in some of the former years although food and bedding were deficient the portion saved was of good quality and fuel was not wanting but in eighteen fifteen every comfort that might have compensated for partial want was absent this description applies to the two years of eighteen sixteen and eighteen seventeen in the midsummer of eighteen seventeen the blaze of fever was over the entire country it had burst forth in almost a thousand different points within the short space of a month in the summer of eighteen seventeen the epidemic sprung forth in Tremor, Ugal, Kinsale, Tralee, and Clonmel, in Carrick-on-Sewer, Illoscria, Bellina, Castlebar, Belfast, Amar, Omagh, Londonderry, Monastirvin, Tullamore, and Slane. This simultaneous breakout shows that there must have been some universal cause. And again, the poor were deprived of employment and were driven from the doors, where before they had already received relief, lest they should introduce disease with them. Thus, destitution and fever continued in a vicious circle, each impelling the other, while want of presence of mind aggravated a thousandfold the terrible infliction of the miseries that attend a visitation of epidemic fever few can form a conception the mere relation of the scenes that occurred in the country even in one of its last visitations makes one shudder in reading them as barker and chain observe in their report a volume might be filled with instances of the distress occasioned by the visitation of fever in eighteen seventeen on the road leading from Cork, within a mile of the town, Contruc, I visited a woman laboring under typhus. On her left lay a child very ill. At the foot of the bed another child, just able to crawl about. And on her right, the corpse of a third child, who had died two days previously, which the unhappy mother could not get removed. In a letter from Dr. O'Leary Conturk, Ellen Pagan, a young woman whose husband was obliged, in order to seek employment, to leave her almost destitute in a miserable cabin, with three children, gave the shelter of her roof to a poor beggar who had fever. She herself caught the disease, and from the terror created in the neighborhood was, with her three children, deserted except that some person left a little water and milk at the window for the children one about four the other about three years old and the other an infant at her breast in this way she continued for a week when a neighbor sent her a loaf of bread which was left in the window four days after this he grew uneasy about her and one night, having prepared some tea and bread, he set off to her relief. When he arrived, the following scene presented itself. In the window lay the loaf where it had been deposited four days previously. In one corner of the cabin, on a little straw, without covering of any kind, lay the wretched mother, actually dying, and her infant, dead by her side, for the want of that sustenance which she had not to give. On the floor lay the children, to all appearance dying also of cold and hunger. At first they refused to take anything, 
and he had to pour a little liquid down their throats with the cautious administration of food they gradually recovered the woman expired before the visitor quitted the house this in a letter from dr mccarthney monivet a man his wife and two children lay together in a fever the man died in the night his wife nearly convalescent was so terrified with his corpse in the same bed with her that she relapsed and died in two days after the children recovered from fever but the eldest lost his reason by the fright many other scenes have i witnessed which would be too tedious to relate this is from the barker and ohane's report i know not of any visitation so much to be dreaded as epidemic fever it is worse than the plague for it lasts throughout all seasons cholera may seem more frightful but it is in reality less destructive it terminates rapidly in death or in as rapid recovery his visitation too is short and it leaves those who recover unimpaired in health and strength civil war were it not for its crimes would be as far as regards the welfare of a country a visitation less to be dreaded than epidemic fever it is not possible then to form an exaggerated picture of the sufferings of a million and a half people in these countries in their convalescence from fever deprived of not only the comforts but even the necessaries of life with scanty food and fuel and covering only rising from fever to slowly fall victims to those numerous chronic diseases that are sure to seize upon enfeebled constitutions death would be to many a more merciful dispensation than such a recovery this is from famine and fever as cause and effect in ireland etc etc by d j Cogigan, esq m d m k c s b dublin j fannin and company grafton street End of footnote. it was to such a state of general tumult that the prophet and his family arose on the morning of the following day as usual he was grim and sullen but on this occasion his face had a pallid and sunken look in it which apparently added at least ten years to his age there was little spoken and after breakfast he prepared to go out sarah during the whole morning watched his looks and paid marked attention to everything he said he appeared however to be utterly unconscious of the previous night's adventure a fact which his daughter easily perceived and which occasioned her to feel a kind of vague compassion for him in consequence of the advantage it might give nelly over him for of late she began to participate in her father's fears and suspicions of that stubborn and superstitious personage father said she as he was about to go out is it fair to ax where you are going it's neither fair nor foul he replied but if it's any satisfaction to you to know i won't tell you have you any objections then that i should walk a piece of the way with you not if you have come to your senses as you ought about what i mentioned to you i have something to say to you she replied without noticing the allusion he had made something that you ought to know and why not mention it here where we are because i don't wish her there to know it thank you ma'am replied nelly i feel your kindness and dear me what a sight of wisdom i'll lose by being kept out of the secret secret indeed a fig for yourself and your secret maybe i have my secret as well as you well then replied sarah if you have do you keep yours as i'll keep mine and then we'll be equal come father for i must go from home too indeed i think this is the last day i'll be with either of you for some time maybe ever what do you mean said the father hut said the mother what a goose you are charley hanlon to be sure i suppose she'll run off with him oh then god pity him or any other one that's doomed to be blistered with you 
Sarah flashed like lightning, and her frame began to work with that extraordinary energy which always accompanied the manifestation of her resentment. "'You will,' said she, approaching the other. "'You will, after your escape the other day.' "'You? No. Ah, no. I won't now. I forgot myself. Come, father, come, come. My last quarrel with her is over.' i returned nelly as they went out there you go and sweet pair you are father and daughter now father resumed sarah after they had got out of hearing will you tell me if you slept well last night why do you ax he replied to be sure i did i'll tell you why i ax she answered do you know that you went last night in the middle of the night to the murdered man's grave in the glen there it is impossible to express the look of astonishment and dismay which he turned up on her at these words. Sarah, he said sternly, but she interrupted him. It's truth, said she, and I went with, What are you speaking about? Me go out and not know it. Nonsense. You went in your sleep, she rejoined. Did I speak, said he, with a black and ghastly look. What, what, tell me, hey, what did I say? you talked a good deal and said that it was condy dalton that murdered him and that you had read rotty to prove it that was what i said eh sarah that's what you said and i thought it was only right to tell you it was right sarah but at the same time at the peril of your life never follow me there again of course you know now that sullivan is buried there i do said she but that's no great comfort although it is to know that you didn't murder him at any rate father remember what i told you about condy dalton leave him to god and just that you may feel what you ought to feel on the subject suppose you were in his situation suppose for a minute that it was yourself that murdered him then ask would you like to be dragged out from us and hanged in your old age like a dog a disgrace to all belonging to you father i'll believe that condy dalton murdered him when i hear it from his own lips but not till then now good-bye you won't find me at home when you come back i think why where are you going there's plenty for me to do she replied there's the sick and the dying on all hands about me and it's a shame for any one that has a heart in their body to see their fellow-creatures gasping for want of a drop of cold water to wet their lips or a hand to turn them where they lie think of how many poor strangers is lying in ditches and in barns and in outhouses without a living being almost to look to them or reach them any single thing they want no even to bring the priest to them that they might die reconciled to the almighty isn't it a shame then for me and the likes of me that has health and strength and nothing to do to see my fellow-creatures dying on all hands about me for want of the very assistance that i can afford them at any rate i wouldn't live in the house with that woman and you know that and that i oughtn't but aren't you afeard of catchin' this terrible fever that's taken away so many if you go among them? Afeard, she replied. No, father, I feel no fear either of that or anything else. If I die, I leave a world that I never had much happiness in, and I know that I'll never be happy again in it. What then have I to fear from death? Any change for me must now be for the better. At all events, it can hardly be for the worse. No my happiness is gone what in heaven's name is the matter with you asked her father and what brings the big tears into your eyes that way good-bye said she and as she spoke a melancholy smile at once sad and brilliant irradiated her features it's not likely father that ever you will see me under your roof again forgive me all my follies now maybe it's the last time ever you'll have an opportunity tut you foolish girl it's enough to sicken one to hear you speak such stuff she stood and looked at him for a moment and the light of her smile gradually deepened or rather faded away until nothing remained but a face of exquisite beauty deeply shadowed by anxiety 
and distress. End of section 9